Hello, everybody. My name is Chris, and I am representing Scorp again. So, as you guys uh, may not have heard from last week, um, we are having our basketball tournament, Hoops for Hope, will be tomorrow, Friday at 6.30. We are still looking for teams. We have seven, and we'd like ten if we possibly can. Um, to sign up, uh, come talk to me or some other Scorp members. I will give you information on that as I can. And um, it'll be 10 EC per person uh, for teams to sign up, teams of five. Again, it'll be meeting at 6.30 down by the hoops. There will be raffle prizes, and all the money will go to um, Doctors Without Borders um, helping out with uh, Syrian refugees. Um, thank you. And one other thing, there is um, some po positive stuff for you guys. It is single elimination. But if you win, there's a 24 case of beer for you. So, good luck. All right, so let's see if we can get started with our second hour. We're going to go on now to the discussion of ground substance, finishing off extracellular matrix. I do have a slide on tissue fluid, but that will come a little bit lower in the lecture. And so we'll also talk about the types of connective tissue, the description and the identification of connective tissue. And in this lecture, we'll hit on some of the clinical significance. So the overview, another slide that I'm going to read with you for the most part. We're looking now at ground substance. What's the function of ground substance? Ground substance is the glue. It literally pulls everything together. It, so it binds the cells to the fibers. And again, we have to have that so that we can allow for the moving as one or the acting as one so that the tissue can function as one particular component. It's also a lubricant, which is a very important aspect. It allows for ease of motion. And hopefully you're thinking, well, motion of what? Is the tissue itself moving? But remember, we have different types of cells that exist within here. Some that are permanent, they're always there. Some that come in from time to time, depending on what's happened. We had that scenario of the mast cell that has overacted in, uh, to, to allergens or pollen or whatever the case may be. And imagine as well if you had a bacterial infection. The bacteria could use the same methods or mode moving along through the connective, sorry, moving through the ground substance of the connective tissue to spread to different regions. So it's also very helpful for our lymphocytes or our white blood cells, and it may be utilized by bacteria as well. It is a barrier, so physical prevention of bacteria and microorganisms, depending on the viscosity. And if the viscosity changes, that's what may allow for the bacterial spread. But essentially, as it is, it's not formed for the passage of bacteria, so it should prevent some of them or keep them out. Either way, we know it's part of our protection here in terms of the lubrication. Uh, it does also add to tissue tensile strength, and there are varying degrees of the ground substance that we'll find as we go through the, this lecture. So we do have uh, glycosaminoglycans, where here they are bound to a protein core. These are always very interesting terms, and we'll look at the two slides that come up after, because you almost can't mention one without mentioning the other. And so here we know that in terms of discussing the glycosaminoglycans, we know that they are bound as carbohydrate chains that are bound to a protein core. The protein core is known as the proteoglycan. We'll go on to see in just a moment that it has a bottle brush-like structure. And we'll talk again about that protein core and what the bristles are formed from. 
Here are some different types of the glycosaminoglycans, and as the name suggests, you can realize that they are found in different places. For example, dermatin sulfate you'll expect to find in skin, chondroitin sulfate you'll expect to find in cartilage, keratin sulfate you'll expect to find, again, where you find keratin, which would be your epidermis, and heparin sulfate you'll find in different places, one of which you saw already was where we had the uh, mast cell releasing the heparin. We have heparin sulfate in tissues as well, and also in the mucus jelly that is Wharton's jelly of the umbilical cord. We'll discuss that again in a moment. The glycoproteins are the fibronectin, laminin, which we had mentioned before when we talked about type 4 collagen binding to laminin in the basement membrane, and also the chondronectin. The purpose of glycoproteins, they are the adhesion molecules. So they pull things together. We have an image where we'll find that. And so here we have that image of the bottle brush, if you will. And here we can see that we have the core protein. And these lines are meant to represent the uh, carbohydrate chains that extend from the protein core. And so this here is the glycosaminoglycan. The proteoglycans. We see along here where we appreciate that we have, again, the uh, core protein. We see with the gags alongside. And appreciating that we have different combinations of these that will attach to different fibers by the presence of the linking proteins that are the proteoglycan aggregates. Okay, so these are the aggregates that will allow for linking to the different fibers that we'll find inside the tissue. This slide shows us the proteoglycans and the glycoproteins. We can see the differences here between them in terms of their structure. For the glycoproteins, we see here that we have collagen, sorry, so that we have the protein uh, structures that are um, attached centrally. We know as well that the glycoproteins are adhesion molecules, and so we can find that they are seen at the base of cells where they attach the connective tissue to the cells above. So we find them as well in that interface between the epithelium and the connective tissue, which is why when we discussed the basement membrane, we talked about laminin in the basement membrane being the interface between the connective tissue and the epithelium. Going back to the idea of laminin or the glycoprotein in the basement membrane, here that big BM here representing basement membrane shows us just at the base of the epithelium and meeting onto the underlying connective tissue, we see this thickened line and further investigations or images will prove that it is in fact laminin that has been present in here. This slide shows us the uh, renal corpuscle and as we had mentioned before, it's quite a prominent basement membrane in the kidney. And so this one shows, again, the basement membrane we're seeing here all the way around. These are the convoluted tubules. This one is a higher magnification on the right than, it, than we had previously seen on the left. And the purpose of the higher magnification is to highlight for us that magenta appearance of the basement membrane. And as we say here, it stains very well with the periodic acid shift. That's PAS. And again, because these components have a large amounts of carbohydrate within them, carbohydrate shows up or stains very well with PAS, and you get that magenta appearance. I have a question.
Uh, I should have a countdown. So a five-year-old male has yellow crusted lesions over his legs and is brought to the physician by his parents. He also has a fever. Um, skin culture is a positive for Streptococcus pyogenes. So it lets us know that there's something to do with bacteria in here. There's some sort of infection going on. So it's the spread of the bacteria can occur in the dermis. But which of the following tissue, connective tissue components provides a protective barrier against bacterial spread? So we already know we're talking about connective tissue because we're talking about the dermis. But which component is going to try to prevent that? Ground substance. So that's exactly correct. Remember, it is in the ground substance that we have the uh, lubrication that allows for the different cells to move around. And while the bacteria are using that to their advantage to spread, our body uses that to our advantage to try to limit the spread. Here is the slide of interstitial fluid where we have a small quantity of water for salvation and diffusion. So the idea to remember here is that we need a balance of our interstitial fluid. There should be just a certain amount of pressure outside and it's actually balanced by the pressure inside. So that's what it says here, there should be a balance between the hydrostatic and the osmotic pressures that keeps the fluid moving throughout the capillaries. If there's an imbalance in these pressures, then fluid can leak out of the capillary and into the surrounding environment or into the surrounding tissue. Once that happens, then that leads to edema, which can happen for different reasons, different circulatory reasons or as a result of mast cell releasing histamine and heparin or, um, circul like I mentioned, circulation issues with problems with congestive cardiac failure, which means that all the blood is not returned to the heart. So the different classification of connective tissue is that of embryonic connective tissue, connective tissue proper, or specialized connective tissue, some of which we'll discuss here today, such as elastic tissue and reticular tissue. The others you'll have lectures on, so we won't get into them today. Mucous connective tissue is a very interesting connective tissue. When we get into connective tissue proper, we'll discuss loose and dense connective tissue, looking at the ratios of the components. One has more cells than fibers, one has more fibers than cells. But here in mucous connective tissue, we have more ground substance than either cells or fibers. We have to have some amount of cells, obviously, because these cells go on to produce the fibers that we'll find in here and as well the large amounts of ground substance. But it is within, the, within this connective tissue, we have greater amounts of the ground substance, and that gives it a jelly-like component. So where would we put this jelly-like structure? One, it keeps our eye uh, patent, or keeps it in that round eyeball shape. That's best for light to reflect, refract, and travel through towards the retina. But also, particularly important, is in the umbilical cord. It's also found in the cardiac jelly, where we, the developing heart and the embryonic region. But as I mentioned, of particular importance is in the umbilical cord. If any of you have had the pleasure or the privilege of being able to cut the umbilical cord of a newborn baby, you find that it's not quite as easy as it looks 
or at least if you have to handle it before clamping to cut. And not only because of the fluids that are associated with the cord, but the cord itself is very jelly-like. There's no other term for it. And that's because the high amount of the heparin sulfate in there pulls or attracts water to the tissue, which means that it is, again, jelly-like. But why is that important? Remember, the umbilical cord is the passageway between mother and fetus. Without this umbilical cord, we could not have oxygen-rich, nutrient-rich blood going into the fetus from the maternal circulation. Without the umbilical cord, we could not have nutrient-deficient, oxygen-poor blood going from the fetus to the maternal circulation. And so this is a, an area that we need those blood vessels to remain patent. If for any reason they were not patent or kinked, we would uh, basically injure or affect the life of this, this developing offspring. And so the jelly-like nature of the umbilical cord means that it does not form a true knot. And of course, telling you that it's difficult to form a knot, I had to find a picture to show you what that knot would look like. So it's something that you will find that obstetricians, the technologists will look for again and again, because if that knot does occur, you have interrupted the flow of blood, and you know, without feed, without food, and without oxygen, we will not survive. Therefore, the fetus will not survive. Now, going on to the mesenchyme or the embryonic connective tissue. Again, in here, you'll have quite a few of your uh, cells. You'll have your fibroblasts, and depending on where they are, they will differentiate into different cell types. So if they go on to form connective tissue that's in the dermis, there'll be your fibroblasts. If they go on to form cartilage, there'll be your chondroblasts. If they go on to form bone, there'll be your osteoblasts, for example. And so this just reminds us that we have that embryonic earlier stage. So here now we have the loose connective tissue, which is also known as the areola connective tissue. So where you find areola, we tend to use them together, but if you were to hear the term areola connective tissue, it points to loose connective tissue. The thing to remember here in the loose connective tissue is that there's a large number of cells compared with the fibers, and that it is a flexible tissue, if you will, it has a very rich blood supply, but it's not resistant to stress, and that's, again, because of the fact that there are less fibers in here. What fibers would we expect to find in loose connective tissue? We expect to find the collagen fibers, which is what we're seeing here in a very random arrangement. This slide has had a slightly different preparation, so we're not seeing the pink or the eosinophilic appearance that we would expect. But the, we can clearly identify our basophilic structures that are the nuclei of the fibroblasts, and the other areas in between would be the areas of the collagen fibers. You would also have, in loose connective tissue, some reticular fibers around, and they tend to be found quite, uh, or they tend to be concentrated around the blood vessels, the smaller blood vessels. You, if it's in skin, you may also find some elastic fibers as well. So we did talk about this at least two times before, so I'm just going to read the, notice, the notes down there at the bottom with you. It is a whole mount preparation, as we had mentioned before. A piece of tissue is removed and whole, and it's placed on the slide, and it's looked at through the microscope. Note, as we had seen before, the cellular component is particularly prominent. Perhaps not seen in the schematic, because it's colorful and our eyes are drawn to different things. But looking here at the slide that is A, we see that there are very many basophilic structures, very many structures interspersed throughout the slide, 
as in here, 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 different regions all together, where we find these basophilic appearances. That lets us know we have lots of cells. Now, we don't sit and, and count the amount of cells we see on the slide comparing to the amount of fibers we see on the slide. What we will do is compare one tissue slide with another tissue slide to understand whether we have a loose connective tissue or a dense connective tissue. And eventually, as you go through, it becomes a little easier to identify at a glance or at a second look whether you have loose connective tissue or dense connective tissue. Here's another uh, slide that shows us where the loose connective tissue may have been taken from. This is the mesentery hair. We can see that there are blood vessels that go through. We know that there will be some adipocytes around as well, reminding us that it's also found just beneath the epidermis, in, or just beneath the epidermis at the superior aspect of the dermis. And we can see that we'll find loose connective tissue just near that region. So this slide, if we actually start from the smaller inset that's labeled three. It's a very high magnification, it's a very small field of view, but it's a very useful one because it shows us the nuclei of the fibroblasts. And yes, they are spindle-shaped. They're not as flat as with some of them we had seen. The nuclei are light and so they are euchromatic. We can deduce that these are fibroblasts that are active, they're producing. But either way, we know that we have identified them. We can see them. The slides one and two are showing us areas of loose connective tissue. Here we're seeing the um, loose connective tissue found in between the glands of the colon. And in two, what we have is a very high magnification, again a very narrow view, of the loose connective tissue of the dermis. And here I'd like to show you something as a comparison. We see the arrow pointing towards the area that is loose connective tissue. If you come further down the same slide, you'll see at the bottom dense irregular connective tissue. Note the presence or the amount of basophilic structures superiorly in comparison with inferiorly. That gives you an idea of the comparisons that we do to understand whether we have loose or dense connective tissue. And so we go on now to discuss dense irregular connective tissue. When we say dense irregular connective tissue, we mean that the fibers in here are not oriented in one particular direction. They go in every which direction. Why is that important? It's a great thing because it means that now this tissue is resistant to stress in all directions, such as when we grow. And so we can expect to find dense irregular connective tissue in the dermis, which is where we find it, one of the places where we find it. We also find it in organs, capsules, and in the periosteum, which is that layer that surrounds the bone. It's the outermost covering of bone. And the first thing here reminds us that the dense irregular connective tissue, there are far fewer cells, and there are more fibers than cells, and certainly more fibers than you would find in loose connective tissue. Now, because of the greater presence of fibers, you'll find that there are blood vessels in here. There may not be as many in number, they may not be as small as you may have found in the loose connective tissue, but there will, of course, be blood vessels, but they tend to be larger blood vessels. So going to the slides now, this first to the left that we see here, we have the notification or the identification of the epithelium, which is helpful. This is quite a high magnification. What we're able to see just beneath that epithelium is the dense irregular connective tissue. And again, we have the different 
nuclei here, the fibroblast that's being pointed out, and the different arrangements of the collagen fibers as they go through the different regions. Being a high magnification, we don't have as many different fibers, fiber directions as, as we saw in the last slide, or even as we see on this one over here. So we can appreciate that we have different directions of the fibers, such as here and this direction, and then change in direction as well to come over here. So far, we've talked about the cells and the fibers. Hopefully, you're remembering that we also have the other component, that is the ground substance, mentioned always when we, have, when we talk about the components of connective tissue. So even though we've compared cells and fibers from loose to dense, we know that we must have the ground substance because it pulls them all together. And also, because ground substance is often forgotten, I'd actually like to give you a, hopefully a helpful image. If any of you remember or have recently done crafts with a, a toddler, they get quite excited. There's always the Elmer's glue, which is a very helpful glue. You usually pull things from your kitchen or around the house, and so you have your spaghetti, fettuccine, you might have some buttons, some little black ones, some big red ones, whatever. Again, this little excited toddler you know, knocks over the table, the Elmer's glue falls down, you get your spaghetti stuck in there, the fettuccine stuck in there, the button stuck in there, and you forget about it. If you get enough of them stuck in there, you will not see the glue when it dries, but you'll have a dried, hardened mass. That is the purpose and the function of our ground substance. So that's why I urge you always to not forget it, because though we focus so much on our cells and fibers, they look like the stars. The ground substance is a thing that holds it all together, and so without it, we really would have neither us nor the point of studying this. This is another slide that shows us the dense irregular connective tissue, and on the left-hand side, there's a light micrograph. On the right-hand side, there's the electron micrograph. They're a fairly low magnification, but they're both very beautiful because they show you looking fairly wispy and feathery, but nonetheless showing you that random and beautifully haphazard arrangement of the collagen fibers in the different directions that we see here. Remembering as well that we have the nuclei of the fibroblast throughout and also the ground substance holding everything together, both seen here on the light micrograph and the electromicrograph. This circle here that gives us the higher magnification reminds us of the collagen fibro fibers and their alternating uh, alpha helices that gives the alternating light-dark appearance on the electromicrograph. So having discussed dense irregular connective tissue and we find where we found it, let's look now at dense regular connective tissue. Just like the name says in the comparison, we remember that the dense irregular connective tissue has fibers that are oriented in a particular direction. So they're uniform. They go from one side to the other. We still don't know where these collagen fibers begin or end, whether it's a high magnification is what we see here in A and this one to the side, or a low magnification is what we see here in B. But we know that it goes from one end to the other, very uniform. Why is that helpful? Remember, our collagen fibers give us strength, and so now when we orient them all in one particular direction, it imparts great tensile, tensile strength to your tissue or your structure, which is, again, an important thing to know, because we find this type of tissue in your tendons and your ligaments. Imagine some of those muscles that you have seen, or that you will see rather, coming up. These muscles, some of them are quite large, and they will pull on the structure, usually bone. The tendon that's holding that must be very strong to withstand that stress that's applied 
when the muscle contracts. So going to the slides now, the first unlabeled schematic we see here that we have the very flattened fibroblasts, and truthfully I could call them fibrocytes, but I'm sticking with the designation of fibroblasts because I know that they are the cell of the dense regular connective tissue, and they will produce the collagen fibers that I see here, and as well the ground substance that I don't see here. Remember, or rather let's look at a, the tissue A, tissue slide A, and we can see again that we have our nuclei lined up in quite a uniform manner as well. Now, it may be tempting again to ignore the wash of color. It's purplish on these two slides. I may say, well, okay, we're looking mainly at the nuclei because they do jump out at you. But we have to remember the two other components in here, the collagen fibers that we see. And it is because the collagen fibers are so uniform in their layout that the nuclei also have a uniform appearance. And so we look at the nuclei here of the fibroblasts, letting us remember, one, that we have fibroblasts, and two, they have a uniform and linear arrangement because the fibers themselves have a uniform and linear arrangement. And of course, our ground substance holding everything together. Here we have another inset. It's from a electromicrograph with the inset being a light micrograph. And it's reminding us that, again, the name of the fibroblast changes when we get into different tissues. And so the fibroblast would have produced the collagen fibers, the ground substance. And as it becomes less active, the name changes and it's known as the tendon cell or the tendinocyte. Again, site lets us know that it's a cell tendino from tendon or related to the tendon, which then reminds us of the connective tissue coverings that we expect to get with the tendons. There's an innermost covering that goes around each cell, and that's known as the endotendinium. Tendinium for tendon, endo being inside, so it's most inside the tendon. If it's most inside, it has to be around each functional unit, which is each cell, each fibroblast, or each tendinocyte. Then if it covers a group of cells, then we know that we have the peritendinium. And so again, peri being around, it just goes around this group. When it covers the entire, ten, uh, the entire tendon, it's known as the epitendinium. And that epitendinium is that nice shiny layer that you'll see when you get into the lab. Epi being outside, so it's the outermost covering. So this slide here shows us that we have the comparison from the dense irregular connective tissue with dense regular connective tissue. Remember we had dense irregular connective tissue in the dermis. And so the dermis has two types of connective tissue. There's the loose connective tissue that you find just beneath the epithelium. And then there's the dense irregular connective tissue that you find under the loose connective tissue. This slide reminds us here that the dense regular connective tissue is seen in a tendon, and here we have the ruptured Achilles tendon. This does look very strong. Uh, it may look like a bone at first, but that's what he's holding, the ruptured Achilles tendon that he's about to try to um, fix. So reticular connective tissue, now we had mentioned, is clearly made up of reticular fibers. Remember when we talked about reticular fibers, we brought to mind that scaffolding of work and something happening. And just like scaffolding has the short segments or smaller segments where people will work, just the same way our reticular fibers, or rather the reticular tissue, 
is composed of reticular fibers that are short, thin, and branching, which form a framework for the cells to hang themselves on to do the work, or the cells to exist to do their work. And so they have the cytoplasm, this reticular cells in here, again, are modified fibroblasts, and their cytoplasmic extensions cover the reticular fibers. So sometimes in this, in this slide, you may not be able to really appreciate the reticular cells themselves. One, because they are sometimes, uh, the cells that are more prominent are the cells of the bone marrow or the lymph, or the cells of the spleen, and also because the reticular fibers wrap up these reticular cells. Now, something to note. We have been using the suffix of site in very many places. You may be tempted to say the reticulocyte, that is part of the blood cell line. It's the lineage of the erythrocyte. In here, it must be called the reticular cells. Reticular cells produce reticular fibers. So here's another look at that reticular connective tissue. Remember that it's short, thin, and branching. And here there are stains specifically for reticular fibers. Remember that the two stains that we had discussed were silver stains or periodic acid shift. The comparison here is between the elastic fibers and the reticular fibers, because there may be a temptation to confuse the two in that they are both darkened fibers that we see in, in a slide. However, here we remember that our elastic fibers, while being thin and dark, they're also very long, and they don't, tempt to, they don't really branch. They get crossed by other fibers, but they don't branch. Whereas our reticular fibers we see here starts off and branches into another fiber, which then has another branch there and another branch there. So thinking of our reticular connective tissue, think of reticular fibers, the scaffolding, short, thin, and branching. Where do we find those reticular fibers? Here we see we have the sectional view of a lymph node, and in here as well we have the appreciation of the reticular fibers that we see around. Remember that you also find your reticular fibers around blood vessels where you have connective tissue, like in your dermis, and also find your reticular fibers is the first fibers that are produced in wound healing. Elastic connective tissue, your elastic fibers are said to be yellow-colored, or the elastic connective tissue is said to be yellow-colored, but that's in the, uh, in the live state. In the stained area, what you'll see are darkened fibers, as you see here, traversing the slide. And again, those are very long fibers. We see that this has started at one end and continues on down to the other. These two slides show you a longitudinal section and a cross section. Remembering the three different stains that we use, Orsine, Resorcine, or Verhoff's, either one of them gives us this appearance of thin, dark fibers within the connective tissue. The different places that we'll find this elastic connective tissue, first and foremost in the ligamentum flavum, in the vocal ligament, and in the suspension ligament of the penis as well. We find elastic fibers in other places as well, such as in our lungs around the alveoli that allow for the stretch and the recoil for breathing, inhalation and exhalation. We also find elastic fibers in the elastic artery. Remember, that presence of the elastic fibers allows, again, for the artery to stretch and recoil, which gives some control over the blood pressure as the blood is ejected under great pressure from the heart. So what are we looking at here? We're stained mainly for the elastic fibers, and we see here we have the elastic fibers not appearing in a straight line, which means they are not stretched. Here they are in a relaxed state. 
And so from the innermost area to the outermost area, we can see that there are a large number of elastic fibers forming laminae or layers in the aorta. If you were given this slide on its own, you may not know that it's the aorta, but you should know that it's an elastic artery. It's an artery that has large amounts of elastic fibers having stained for them. In between these elastic fibers, you'll also find some collagen fibers and as well fibroblasts, not forgetting the ground substance. Adipose connective tissue, having met these before, we'll look a little bit about the brown adipose as well. This is a quick recap here reminding you that we like to say that it has a, a signet ring appearance on the slide, and that's mainly because of the thin rim of cytoplasm with a nucleus displaced off to one side, reminding us that we have the lipid droplet that gets washed off or removed when we have stained with H&E because the lipid will get washed off with the alcohol. Rather, it's lost after the application of the alcohol. And here we have the brown adipose tissue, which again has that appearance of the alternating uh, lipid droplet that's lost and the cytoplasm of the cell. Now, the difference between the two is that the brown adipose tissue has a nucleus that's centrally located. This is quite a low magnification, so it's difficult to tell whether or not it's in the middle of the cell. We, def we definitely know for certain that it's not pushed off to the periphery. So there are some things that we'll compare within here to understand the differences. Also, in terms of the function, the brown adipose is found in neonates predominantly, and it's found around the neck and around some of the abdominal organs where they function in heat production, whereas the white adipose is for energy production. So some of the specialized connective tissue that you'll go on to discuss is that of cartilage, bone, and blood. And they'll have, again, varying degrees of varying amounts of your cells, fibers, and ground substance within them. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a condition of which there are different types and therefore different severities. We won't discuss all of them here. I'm just going to mention the underlying problem that we have with Ehlers-Danlos. It's a condition where there's abnormal collagen production and it's attributed, attributed to mutations in the genes that encode for the alpha chains and the various collagens. So then we start to think of, okay, where do we put our collagens again? Where do we lay down the collagens? Because then we need to understand that if there's a problem in the collagen that's being laid down, all the places that have collagen will be affected. And so it's characterized by hypermobility of the joints of the digits, uh, pale and thin skin, because remember we have collagen within our dermis of the skin. There may be early morbidity and mortality. That's possibly due to the rupture of vessels and internal organs um, because they can also have aortic aneurysms because of the problem with the collagen deposition, collagen placement in the aorta itself. Look at the differences seen here in the skin and that, that would account, or rather it would be due to the differences in the collagen that's laid down here. Interestingly enough, patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, if it's not a severe type, they can be misdiagnosed as hypochondriac because it may not look like there's very much wrong with them. So that's something that they may present with again and again and complain. They may present with particular complaints and would have to be investigated further. With uh, fibrosis and keloids, what we have is an increased collagen. And in fact, the differences of the two that we have here 
from this one to let's say this one, this looks to be sort of an, in, well, no, it's definitely a keloid formation. So this is, these two show us keloid formation, whereas this one to the left shows us the hypertrophic scar. So we know that when we have a wound or a laceration, we know that there's healing. They may leave a thin line that shows a scar depending on the shade of our skin or our color. It may or may not color up the same way because of the loss of melanocytes. And so we may have that thin line that shows us where the injury was. But the problem is here with the hypertrophic scar is that collagen is laid down. Again, we've had our, yes, reticular fibers first. Collagen fibers are laid down, but there's way too much of it being laid down. And so we find that it's along the same line or the same area of the original injury, but it protrudes above the original injury. And that's the hypertrophic scar, hyper being more. Whereas keloids are where we have abnormal collagen being laid down. Sorry, say that again. Keloids where we have normal collagen being laid down, but it is abnormal in that it extends past the point of the injury. And so we see here this person who probably attempted to pierce the air and now ends up with this bump in the air. I'm not sure if there's anyone else from other areas in the Caribbean, but down here in Grenada we often said, or I'd hear some people say that they don't want to pierce their ears because they get plums in their air. And these are the bumps that they mention with keloids. Interestingly, both of these are very common in people from African descent, so black people tend to have greater risk of having keloids and hypertrophic scars. I remember that because I worked with a surgeon, as a student, I was following a surgeon, I should say, and he had a tendency to introduce steroid into um, the wounds when he, was he when he was closing up from surgery. And when I asked him why would he do that, he said because he believed, as it had been proven in other patients, he believed that it helped to reduce even further the chances of having a keloid. I'm not sure if he put out any information on it. I haven't found it yet. But if he did try. Because the thing with these is that once you, if you try to remove it, it would recur the same way. The problem is the injury, and there's just a lot of collagen being laid down. Scurvy is, unfortunately, one of my favorite things to talk about, mainly because we've had the popularity of Captain Jack Sparrow, who had great wit but horrible teeth. Um, and we see that here, scurvy is a decreased collagen because of vitamin C. And if you go back to that very busy slide that I showed you, I said to you that at the fourth stage, not that you need to remember these different stages, but there's a particular stage where we have hydroxylation of proline and lysine, in particular proline, and we require vitamin C for that stage. And so if we do not have vitamin C for that stage, you get an abnormal amount of collagen being laid down. And again, we think of where collagen goes. Collagen goes in our gums and around the teeth and in the teeth, especially if it's collagen type 1. It goes around or in the skin and around our blood vessels. And so if collagen is lost, those blood vessels can rupture very easily, which means that we can have bleeding in the skin, under the skin, around the body, internally and externally. Here we see the gums and as well the loss of a tooth in this area because of that abnormal collagen being laid down. You may wonder why I have the lime hair. For those of you, again, who have been here for a while, if this is your second semester, having come up from undergrad, you may have heard the term, it's not just Grenadians, most of us use it in the Caribbean, 
Instead of saying we're going to hang out the tie, we're going to go lime. The term is believed to have been, don't quote me, but it's believed to have been originated from the days when the sailors would come over, the British sailors in particular would come over off the ships and they would hang out waiting for their next mission or their next voyage. And they were, they were called the limeys because they carried limes on their boats, which they sucked. They didn't know about lime juice. And they sucked that to try to introduce vitamin C to try to prevent scurvy. Okay, so I like to believe there's a nice historical use of the term. Marfan syndrome is the other, uh, the other clinical correlate that we'll discuss today. And here we have decreased elastic fibers being laid down because it's a defect in the fibrillin gene. And so it's usually an autosomal, autosomal dominant disorder. What we then get as a result of this defect is a person who's quite tall in stature, very long limbs, fingers, and toes. Now, there's also a, a slimness to the person. They may have scoliosis as well. And if we know that the elastic fibers are affected, we can expect the skin to be affected. We can expect that the, the heart may be affected, in particular, cardiovascular, man ma cardiovascular manifestations such as aortic aneurysm and mitral valve prolapse. Now, again, if we have that aortic, or the aorta, we have the elastic fibers around. If the elastic laminae are not sufficient to allow the stretch and the subsequent recoil, what you will get are portions of the wall of the aorta that separate. That's the aortic aneurysm. And once they, oh, sorry, the aortic dissection creates a larger structure that is the aortic aneurysm. And it may, if untreated, it may progress onto an actual rupture of the aorta. So here's that slide of the anaphylactic shock, which is an increased mast cell release of histamine. It's where the body is doing as it should, but it's just doing it really, really excitedly. And so this is a problem because people are allergic to things that are quite common to some, such as protein or allergens like pollen and stuff that's around that you can't control, bees, etc., ants sometimes, things that you have no control over. Edema we had discussed before in terms of the increased tissue fluid. This child that I have here is showing a malnutrition deficiency, I believe it's quashia core, it's a protein deficiency. And because there's a loss of protein, that decreases the osmotic pressure, which should keep the fluid within the capillaries. But instead, as the osmotic pressure goes down, the fluid leaves the capillaries going into the tissues, and therefore the child presents with edema of the face and limbs and abdomen. I have a question. And the countdown, actually. So the 41-year-old male comes to the emergency room after cutting the palm of his right hand. You can assume that it was not purposely done. Perhaps he was preparing dinner and it was a very sharp knife and again it's the palm of the hand the wound is not particularly big it's an inch wide and half an inch deep but it is bleeding profusely 
And so the wound has been cleaned, sutured, dressed. <clears throat> and he is sent off home, told what to expect. But he comes back and there's noticed that there's been some healing. So what cell is responsible for producing the first fibers laid down in wound repair? Yes, the reticular cells are correct. We know we're talking here about the reticular fibers and those are produced by the reticular cells. The fibroblasts will always also be active in here to produce the collagen fibers, but asking for the first fibers would be the reticular fibers. Thank you for your attention, guys. I'll see you in the lab.